Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Humanity First. We have a what is coming a, a regular guest with us today, Lee Whittemore, who's the director of our counseling services at um, Whitman. Hi, Lee. How are you doing? Hey, Peter. Thank you for having me back. I'm doing well. Thanks. Well, I think it's probably a good time to have you in again. I, I often think you of the, the sort of roving mental health person at BAMSI who is called to all, all corners of BAMSI when we, um, when we have issues like we, uh, the passing of a, a resident or some sort of trauma-type uh, situation. Your team, you and your team are always there to provide support, and I just want to publicly thank you for that ongoing uh, role that you play here at BAMSI. Thank you. We're happy to be able to provide that service and support to people. It's, it's definitely needed. And as we move into um, this next phase of uh, the, the, the pandemic uh, or the endemic, I think we're calling it now, we're, we're getting towards conversations that are both short-term and long-term around what we're dealing with. So it's the beginning of February this week. This January has seen some of the highest numbers of infections of people uh, that we've seen since March of 2020. Uh, and again, that's had a huge effect on our workforce and our person served. In fact, in a two-week period in the middle of January, we had 170 people infected in the agency, which is the highest by far. Um, the good news, I suppose, was that most of those people uh, did not have serious um, effects from that. In fact, they were asymptomatic in the, in the main, so they were back to work within five days. But that's really not been the case uh, across the board in the country when you look at some of the ICU numbers and um, hospitalizations and deaths. And we're still seeing uh, high numbers of death on a daily basis, although I think the curve is lowering. So I want to talk about a couple of things today. One is, you know, well, what, what do we make of this last month? What, what kind of an imprint is that making on an already tired uh, and overwhelmed workforce and, in fact, uh, populace in, in this country? And then maybe talk about some of the long-term effects of, of COVID, uh, given that as we move into yet another phase of COVID, we're beginning to think in many states, well, okay, you know, that the, the worst is behind us. But as a mental health professional, I think we should talk about what the long-term effects in terms of uh, people's mental health are about this, especially kids. Um, and, uh, you know, when you think about a kid who's six, seven years old, two years of their life, which is a significant portion, a fifth of their life, has been taken up under COVID uh, regimen. So, but let's, <clears throat> let's start with the short-term effects. <clears throat> How much pain and misery can be overlaid on a population like this um, when we feel like we're turning a corner and then we're having to face it again. Are you seeing that in the, in the, um, in the people that you see? Are you seeing people who are just worn out, burnt out? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think Omicron has brought back renewed fears, you know, um, feeling that we're going backwards. Um, we've seen a lot of just COVID fatigue with people. Like they're just, they fear it, but they're done with it. They're just tired of the everyday um, and the back and forth. And, you know, it's, it's a pandemic. It's hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, I think a lot of people got their hopes up that life was going to get back to normal. And then the variants hit, you know, in the latest one. Um, you know, at the clinic, we've temporarily gone back to mostly remote services. Um, we're hoping, you know, not too much longer, but just to keep everyone safe. But, you know, even with clinicians, they're just... They're getting tired, you know. Um, everyone wants to get back to normal, whatever normal is, um, but that's really hard to predict, you know, going forward. Um, but I think, you know, in the people that we serve, you know, just 
trying to get them through each day a lot of mindfulness uh, in support of counseling uh, because there are a lot of renewed fears out there. Do you feel, you know, I I remember thinking about PTSD and the and the definition of PTSD in the original DSM-3 or whenever it was, and post-traumatic stress disorder and the, is defined in, in many ways, but it talks about, um, you know, natural uh, disasters. It talks about upheaval. It talks about things like pandemics. also talks about the family, which is another place where PTSD can happen. But it sort of makes this point that if people collectively suffer trauma, the effects of that trauma are different for those people en masse. And I, I was wondering about that the other day because everybody can tell a story about, the, uh, about how COVID has affected them and how difficult it's been for them. Do you think that sort of collective uh, experience has helped or hindered uh, people in terms of how they've managed COVID? I think it depends on the population you're with at the time. I mean, I think for some, you know, they feel we're all in this together. And I think for other people, you know, they've really felt that their lives have been at risk. And that's really, you know, increased um, their fears. COVID has not been an equal, equally distributed in the population. When you think about our own staff who've had to work through COVID and certainly over the past two or three, four weeks have had to uh, live in programs and who have had to have been uh, excluded from work for five days uh, because of because of infections. It does uh, um, uh, affect people differently. <clears throat> and the, the workplace, of course, is one of those things. Um, but I think, you know, as we as we begin to take stock of this, as we begin to look at, well, what are the long-term effects of COVID? I hear a lot of things about people who have difficulty breathing uh, still, people who have long-term loss of some of their senses, you know, in terms of uh, smell, um, things like that, <clears throat> even uh, some neuro, uh, neurological issues that people are struggling with. But the the conversation now is t- turning really to the brain and to the long-term effects of COVID for individuals who have lived through this a um, couple of things uh, are you with the kids that you're seeing seeing a different um, a different behavior or a different me- math sort of method of dealing with COVID from kids somebody said to me the other day that <clears throat> the kids who have been um, you know wearing masks uh, so much over the past two years are they are they as well sort of socialized to no facial expressions now that they haven't seen a mouth smiling for a long time. And what what do you think some of those longer-term effects are going to be? Let's start with kids. Well, I, I think for, for kids, younger kids who've, who've, you know, been, you know, kind of developing during the pandemic, I'm not so sure they can't recognize facial expressions because they're on Zoom, they're on video the whole time without the masks. But I think this, the socialization effect is really there. I think that a lot of younger kids don't really know how to interact with each other. You know, um, when you're home and you're on a video, if you don't like what the other person's saying, you just disconnect. And when you're with someone in person, you, know, you have to have the nuances of that interaction. So I think there's been a lot of, you know, uh, I guess negative effects socially with kids, even high school students. You know, they've been online. Uh, last year, students only had to roll over in bed and, you know, check into home room. They didn't have to get up, you know, and they were still late. I can talk from personal experience in my home. Um, you know, but just, you know, they, they want very much to get back to what they remember, you know, I think, um, without the masks. And, and, you know, for a lot of the, the kids that I've seen and, and, you know, in and out of the clinic, the masks really aren't the issue. It, it's just, you know, it's the fear. It's the fear, you know, um, if someone got, you know, closer to me than six feet, am I going to 
contract this. So um, I think there are a lot of fears that people are going to have to deal with, especially our, our younger generation in, in years coming. Um, I think for, for you know, school-age students, this is going on the third academic year that it's affected. People in college you know, who were freshmen, it's affected their freshman year, their sophomore year, now their junior year. Um, proms have been canceled. A lot of the social aspects have been canceled, and education has been affected. But you know, that all affects their mental health and you know, their self-esteem and, and their level of confidence. Yeah. You know, especially in social situations. <clears throat> so it begins to, you know, it, it does it does make you think that it must be very difficult for a developing brain to understand all this, especially when um, there is so much diversions of thought about COVID. Um, you know, we've all seen this week this spat that's been going on on Spotify that, um, you know, um, artists are saying that they won't, um, they don't want their music played if... Joe Rogan, you know, is still uh, spreading disinformation. Yet, millions of people listen to Joe Rogan. So parents are having those conversations that go along the lines of, you know, uh, more people have died from post-vaccine boosters than they have from from the infection, those kind of things, which are easily discredited, I think, with the CDC. But in, in a way, we've moved into this sort of post-fax society, haven't we, where, or, or, or at least facts are fungible, facts are uh, whatever political or persuasion uh, you feel that is, is relevant to you. I wonder how kids are dealing with that. You know, they're coming into school and they're hearing one story. They might be going home and hearing another, and maybe they're caught in uh, in a very difficult situation and not really knowing what to believe. I think there's a lot of confusion with, with our younger generation. I think kids are confused because, you know, they're being taught one thing in school and then they're hearing something perhaps different at home. Um, and I think that causes a lot of confusion. I also think that, you know, They've been taught to stay six feet apart, wear a mask, and I think if we just totally, you know, if we're going to just stop doing that, they're going to ask, well, where to go, you know. Um, so I think, you know, and whenever you have confusion or unanswered questions, especially in young people, it causes fear. So I think, you know, going forward, we're going to have to really look to that and make sure that, um, you know, kids and young adults are, are really supported and they get the facts. Where can we send them to get the facts? And I suppose it depends where children are on the developmental uh, stage uh, around when when this has happened you know in terms of the developing brain of a three to five year old looks very different obviously than a nine to ten year old Um, and so we're going to have to look for some of these um, you know effects five six years down the line I mean I remember you know when um, when we had the issue with um, crack cocaine back in the early 90s when we were doing child protection work, we weren't really finding out that there were um, adverse um, you know, uh, issues for kids for five or six years for those who were born with a positive toxic screen. I wonder if we're going to get the same thing five or six years down the line for those two- to three-year-olds, those five- to seven-year-olds, those nine- to ten-year-olds. Yeah, I and mean, it's, it's very true that could be possible. Um, and we just won't know until more time goes, you know, goes by. Um, and I think the unknown really does create fear with people because they just don't know what to expect in the future. When we look at what's been you know, um, written about um, you know, the preschool years and, and how important uh, pre-K is, you know, for kids in terms of socialization, because that's really the main thing, isn't it? it? Is it is how to learn to <laughs> tame the id, if you like, uh, and and make sure that you know there's there there is a recognition of other people's feelings and uh, emotions and that ability to um, 
to become a member of society, really. And, you know, I, I do worry, not just in the pre-K years, but the early, you know, rising fives and above, that that's going to be an issue. And I, I worry about kids in college as well. Uh, you know, if you think about anybody who's been fortunate enough to go to college, is that the social aspect of that, the learning of how to uh, make that transition of adolescence into adulthood, essentially for those who are privileged enough to go to college, that's where a lot of that happens. And much of what now for three years people have been doing is online, right? A lot of it's online. And even though you know most colleges are back to in-person or going back into in-person soon, they're still offering a lot of online courses. So, you know, the people are getting you know, a lot of their degree online, but they're missing that social piece. You know, they're missing the, the group classes where they can put their desks in a circle and really have a debate and a good conversation. And I think so, I'll, you know, for those who live away at school, I think, you know, the dorm life, having, you know, not having that is, you know, as much of an opportunity for that, I think is definitely affecting people. I feel a sense of, um, uh, I feel sorry for politicians at the moment, which doesn't happen very often. <laughs> but I do feel that th- that this is a particular period in time where they're not going they're going to be right with half the population and wrong with the other half, uh, just in terms of how we're so divided. And it is a natural feeling of a leaders of leaders in a country to say, we've got to get on with this. We've got to put this behind us. We've got to drop. I mean, I know that in Britain last week and in much of Europe, they have just got rid of all uh, restrictions now and they're just going for it and there's a lot of people saying hey you know just why doesn't everybody get it like the older measles and uh, mumps rubella parties that we had when i had when i was a kid which is a while ago um you know on the other hand we're still seeing people die but are we are we forgetting um, to consider the long-term effects if we do that. Look, we've got to f- go forward in, in one direction here as, as a country. We've got to be really careful about, about what to look for in the, in the future. And so I guess one of the questions I would have to you is, what do you think the diagnoses are going to, which, which diagnoses are going to arise within, you know, as we move out of, of COVID? You've, you've talked about fear a lot. I mean, I definitely think, you know, PTSD is going to be on the rise, but also adjustment disorders. As things, you know, go back to normal or, or change to what we think was normal or the new normal, I think people are going to have a lot of difficulty adjusting to it and adjusting to what they probably thought it was going to be like post-COVID. Um, so I think those are the two that we're definitely going to see a rise in. And what do you think the clinicians uh, will be um, uh, employing in terms of best practices to ad- uh, to address adjustment disorder? And the other one I would imagine is anxiety, because I mean I think I think we're awash with generalized anxiety disorder in this in in our country, uh, especially in our adolescence. And I can only imagine that general anxiety disorder has sort of gone will go through the roof in terms of uh, diagnosis. So, what kind of things will our clinicians be employing to address that? I think depending on the age range, you know, I think for the younger kids, definitely a, a lot of play therapy where they can just experience some normalized interaction, you know, um, but a lot of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and you know, I think for the the more severe anxiety of, of getting back into it, I think more desensitization. Yeah. You know, yeah, I would have, I would have thought this situation is ripe for CBT. Really, just in terms of allowing people to sort of um, you know ex- examine their own emotional emotional response to what's going on in society. So I think that's that's important. Um, what about groups? You know, it, it just struck me that you know groups are such an important part of the therapeutic process and maybe when we're talking about uh, re-establishing a a social um, uh, 
sequence in our in our community. Maybe groups is something that we could look at. Group work uh, is so important. Um, you know, definitely the therapeutic milieu is important. But I think group work is going to be um, vital. But I think it's getting the f- getting people to get over their fear of actually being in a group of people. And I think once they can do that, I think they would they'll benefit from the groups. I think group work is going to be um, very much something that we need to look at. And just, I suppose, finishing um, on fear, because <laughs> it's come up a lot, and I know that you worry a lot about being able to provide that level of service and that level of volume for our community, uh, given the workforce issue. What's your biggest fear going forward in terms of you know meeting the needs of our community? Um, you know, just continuing to, to find clinicians to support people, you know, um, it's it's really hard when you when you see a need and you have a wait list at the clinic and we just we just not finding the clinicians, you know. Um, so that's my fear, just not being able to provide services to the people that need it. And if you were doing a commercial right now, trying to persuade that person who's thinking about a career, um, what would you say to persuade somebody that this is a is a field that they should go into? It's a difficult question to ask right now, but it's probably a really important uh, question to ask right now. I guess two things. The first thing I would say is, um, you know, reach out to that ad. Have a conversation. Make your decision after a conversation. You know, some of the ads out there are really, you know, eye-catching. And I think once I, I got the person in person, I'd really talk about, you know, the experiences of clinicians and how they can actually impact someone. Um... Because right now, you know, the ads are so, um, they're just attractive, Mm -hmm. you know, so people are going to actually go towards the the attractive ones with the high salaries and and a lot of people want to do telehealth and that's great. It's definitely a modality that's that's needed, but we also need the in-person and, you know, the community mental health centers, you know, need the staff. So just have that conversation. (laughs) Well, I think I think that's true, and and you know I think if I was to speak to our funders, I would say some of the most important work is going to be done in community mental health centres and places like Bamsey over the next few years in ensuring that we have a population that really returns um, and gets their mojo back. Because I think you know collectively um, in this country, COVID has done a number on us all, <coughs> and you know. Uh, nobody gets through this alone. You know, everybody needs help, and, and, th- and this is the kind of help that people need. Lee, I really appreciate you coming in today, and thanks so much for your insights. Thank you again for having me. It's always a pleasure.